This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. In the latest of NBR's pre-election sector profiles, we wanted to take a look at the state of the aviation industry and the issues that its participants think should be on politicians' minds as the election nears. Kath O'Brien is one of the most important voices in the country's aviation sector. As the Executive Director of the Board of Airlines Representatives of New Zealand, she represents interests of airlines and other businesses that serve aviation. These members are battling back to full capacity after COVID restrictions crippled the industry. She joins me now. Hi, Kath. Kia ora. So in terms of the industry overview, before we get into the nitty gritty of, of policy, tell me sort of where the industry's at right now coming back from those the, you know, terrible COVID times. Yeah, look, I'm speaking to you like on the day that you know, COVID restrictions for mandatory isolation have been relaxed. Uh, and look, it's great to finally get to this point after years of, of kind of restriction. Um, the borders have been open in New Zealand for around about a year um, or close to, and you know, we are seeing a great recovery for aviation. Um, you know, first of all, we've seen, you know, what I'd call kind of revenge travel where people have, have gone out and they've travelled kind of against all odds. And that created a real travel bubble and we saw that kind of from last summer and through into the year. Um, I think now we are seeing a bit more of a normalisation of that travel pattern, uh, probably in line with other economic trends. Uh, and also we are seeing the return of competition to New Zealand uh, for airlines, which is fantastic. So Barnes has got uh, something like 26, 27 uh, airline members and we've also got some other business members such as ground handling and and catering and um, waste management, other suppliers to aviation. And, you know, it's great to be busy again. Mm, mm. We see um, Auckland... Uh, back at something like you know 85% by perhaps this summer in terms of a recovery of pre-COVID numbers. Uh, Christchurch and, and Wellington are behind but you know tracking up um, and Queenstown is really busy um, and I'd be surprised if they're not back at 100%. So you know some really great uh, recovery stories in there. Yeah so the I suppose it's, there's a, always a mix of supply and demand when it comes to bringing that capacity back on, and obviously a lot of your um, members are international airlines flying into New Zealand. Um, what are some of the factors and drivers behind their business decisions to come back to New Zealand? Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about New Zealand as a geographically isolated island nation, and if you draw a circle around us, there's about 2,000 kilometres before you hit anything. Uh, and so airlines and, and long-haul marine are really key to, to keeping us connected as a nation. Um, but it is a tricky business case coming to somewhere like New Zealand. Um, for airlines, we talk about a route like this as a long, skinny route. Um, it's long and skinny because, first of all, it's a long way from anywhere, more or less. And, and it's skinny because our market at this end is small. So... Airlines that do well in this market will often come from a large market. So, you know, we're thinking the Singapore's, the Americas, you know, big markets, and then go all the way out down the long skinny route to, to our market. And they'll be relying on their home market to do a lot of the filling of the aircraft for, that, for those routes. So it is, it is a big business case. 
um, you do look carefully at costs and it's really important that the business case stacks up. Mm. So in terms of the, the government's role in this, are there things that they could be doing or are doing or have traditionally done to help uh, that sort of commercial decision making? Yeah, look, look, there are absolutely things we can do. Um, not to get immediately practical, but, you know, for example, um, we have a, uh, an airport in New Zealand called Ohakia, which is an RNZAF uh, base. And that airport has historically been nominated by airlines as an alternate airport. So when they come to Auckland, they have an alternate, which is somewhere they can go if, if Auckland Airport closes or something happens on the way. Ohakia is at the moment limited for rescue fire, which means it's not open for nomination all of the time. Uh, that means that airlines have to nominate Christchurch instead when they fly to Auckland. Now, because Christchurch is further away, it means that you have to carry a lot more fuel, so several tonne more fuel, uh, to be able to get to Christchurch. And that burns several more tonne of, ca- of carbon every time you do it. So I know that's like a very practical example, but the availability of sufficient resource for rescue fire would mean that airlines flying to New Zealand would burn two or three tonne less fuel and about eight or nine tonne less carbon every trip, every time. Mm. So, like, that's a very practical and very present limitation on New Zealand, and that's absolutely something we could solve. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good example and a good um, specific practical one. In terms of the overall, I guess, strategic direction of the government and, and its agencies, do you feel like there needs to be a little bit more um, uh, direction given? Yeah, I think what we've come through is a time where, you know, government agencies were really leaning into aviation because of COVID and because of the closed borders and the need to kind of support that that industry. I think since um, COVID restrictions have come away, we've seen less support for aviation uh, than than in the past. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I would look to see the Ministry of Transport kind of lean in and do more for, um, for aviation uh, than we have seen in these last months. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there has been a the Air Navigation Systems Review published in May, uh, which had some recommendations. Is there any sort of fuel yeah. for that coming out of that? Yeah, I'd call that the kind of bright light on the horizon, to be honest. Like that, that Air Nav Systems Review um, essentially started off as a review of airways, um, really, and a review of just the air navigation settings. And it, it broadened into a review that is much more systematic, and it makes recommendations about uh, the need for an aviation policy. Uh, New Zealand does not have one of those, despite that we have an aerospace policy. Mm -hmm. Um, It talked about the need for an aviation council, which is something that um, sector and government agency could do together. Uh, It talked about the the challenge we've got with our user pays infrastructure and how the user pays model doesn't always work uh, for, for delivering us what we need. And so the Air Navigation Systems Review is a lovely little toolkit for any incoming minister or of any government to be able to pick up and and move forward with. 
Now, in terms of the, the funding that you mentioned, that the user pays, and, and um, I suppose that coming into question, I did write a story a couple of years ago, which I think was before your your time at Barnes, but it was around a, a submission made and a consultation there about um, the commercial airlines kind of wanting to review the subsidising that they do of um, of general aviation, I suppose, through infrastructure and, and other things. Is that something that's still sort of high on your priorities? Or Yeah, I think what I'd say there is that the cost model for recovery of fees for things like um, air navigation services, so airways fees, for AVSEC, um, for MPI, all, all rely on basically per passenger charges basis. So um, if, for example... Um, Airways is funded on that basis, you know, you will see general aviation not paying because they're not actually kind of paying a per passenger charge like a commercial airliner does. Um, so, you know, I think there are some some hints in that NAV systems review to some to review some of those those models. And I think we actually need to, not not so much because, you know, X group should pay more, something like that, but actually because the user pays system that we live with for aviation doesn't actually allow us to develop the infrastructure that we're going to need to to keep aviation running, especially in a world that, that faces climate change and the need to decarbonise aviation. Mm. Okay, well, in terms of funding for infrastructure then, I know you've come out strongly against the sort of the, the, the high level of cost that Auckland Airport um, recently announced with its refurbishment. Um, well, refurbishment's probably a bit of an understatement, but um, how do you, are there any political levers that you can pull there? I know that the Commerce Commission obviously regulates the, the monopolistic behaviour there. Is, is, are they doing enough? Yeah, look, I think um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens next when it comes to the Commerce Commission and Auckland Airport. So at the moment, Auckland Airport has set its prices for, for price-setting event four, uh, and the Commerce Commission will review those late this year and into next year. Um, depending on its findings, it might find that Auckland Airport is targeting excess profits, perhaps. Um, and if it makes that sort of a finding, it will be interesting to see whether Auckland Airport chooses to reset its prices, uh, which is what happened uh, in the last price-setting event. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, the Commission is probably thoughtful about Auckland Airport's uh, very large CapEx plan, um, which is incredibly expensive, and it's incredibly high target return that it has set for itself of 8.73% in this price period. And and I think, you know, there are options available um, for the Commission to consider, including an inquiry, to see what... Um, whether there could be better options for for controlling the monopoly that is Auckland Airport, um, or other forms of regulation such as negotiate arbitrate, which is also available under Part Four of the Commerce Act. So more teeth, basically. Yeah, there are some more teeth options shaking around in mm. that toolkit. Mm. And uh, if I was the Commerce Commission, I think I'd be shaking my my bag mm. to see what I had in there. Okay, because infrastructure is going to be a huge challenge going forward, not least for what we have at the moment, but also for the sustainability transformation that the airline industry is going yeah, through look, absolutely. in terms of, you know, I suppose facilities for sustainable aviation fuel and for uh, electric charging, yes. those kind of things. Are, are you seeing enough movement on, on the airport yeah. front? Yeah, look, I actually, 
I look out for that all the time now when I look at airport plans, airport master plans, and I'm afraid I don't actually see the right sort of consideration for for electric infrastructure um, or um, hydrogen infrastructure uh, in terms of domestic decarbonisation. Airports will traditionally say our infrastructure will serve sustainable aviation fuel because, of course, that's just a drop-in fuel mm. that you can use your existing pipes for. But they are silent um, or close to silent on how they might manage um, charging infrastructure. And I think that is because often the electricity grid that is local to airports is operating under a high-demand kind of premise. So it's already pretty full. Mm. And there would need to be significant investment probably in the local distribution assets and potentially reinforcement from the national grid uh, to be able to supply sufficient uh, charging ability at airports. So I am a little bit nervous about that because you see airlines working hard to decarbonise and to introduce electric aircraft and I'm starting to wonder to myself, where are we going to charge them? Um, so I think that's really something for you know MB, which is the ministry that, that considers energy and the Ministry of Transport and sector to really consider. Um, I think that's also interesting because, you know, where you're able to charge an electric aircraft might then get you to how the new network looks. So the new domestic network, you know, operating on, on electrification or hydrogen aircraft will will potentially travel differently to the one we have today based on where you can fuel. Yeah. So it's super interesting and there's a lot of work to do and we need to get on and do it. Yeah, well, uh, as you say, it, it largely will fall to the government, especially if you're talking about international airlines flying here aren't necessarily going to, I mean, unless it's a user pays system, which you're sort of advocating against, um, they're not going to be able to develop that infrastructure for themselves. Yeah, and I think, you know, the only alternative we have right now for long-haul aviation and long-haul marine is a sustainable aviation fuel of, of some type. Mm. And in this region, and I, I say region meaning kind of Australia, Pacific, New Zealand, you know, we, we don't have a supply of sustainable aviation fuel. And we have got uh, a feasibility study going on where New Zealand's contributing like one5 million dollars and and the government has, has chipped in seven hundred and sixty five thousand um, dollars that's all we're doing at the moment as far as I'm aware on sustainable aviation fuel and that has got to be the thing that we do for New Zealand we are a geographically isolated island nation two thousand kilometers in a circle like like we have got to make sure our fuel supply is um, available and sustainable. Um, much better that than, you know, an aviation, um, sustainable aviation fuel mandate. Mm, sure. In terms of the, I suppose, the regional domestic um, landscape, you still, you know, advocate for air travel as being, um, you know, sustainable and, and, and the best way to get around New Zealand? Yeah, look, I think New Zealand is, um, is a long, skinny, mountainous country prone to, you know, geographic fault, basically. You know, we've got a lot of basically earthquakes and and unstable land. And I think, you know, you only have to take a glance at the roading system at the moment to see that it is under pressure. 
um, if you lay that map of New Zealand across Europe, you can see that the distances we are talking about for New Zealand are significant as compared to Europe, for example. And, and so we are likely to need aviation to get around efficiently um, for this foreseeable future. And it will be great if domestically that could be a decarbonised aviation system. So in terms of the political spectrum, are you seeing much policy sort of announcement out there that's affecting you at the moment? Yeah, look, not not really, no. I think a bit of a deafening silence on that front. I mean, I think um, there's still a lot to play for in this election run, and I am very interested in hearing uh, where to from here, and certainly uh, Barnes and um, other members of the sector will be in touch uh, with our various politicians and their, and their opposition uh, to discuss things that are important to aviation. Excellent. Well, best of luck with that. Thanks thanks. very much for joining me. Thank you. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher beaming into us from Germany this week. So, Christoph, you're drawing parallels between Germany's economy and New Zealand. What are you thinking about? Absolutely. Now that I've been here for about a month and have listened to sort of politicians, business people and just people on the street, you find that they have very similar complaints to what we hear in in New Zealand, uh, namely that productivity is too low, that compliance costs are too high, that businesses uh, don't get the job done because there are just too many rules, that the school system isn't as good as it should be, and infrastructure is, is suffering, um, and that the economy is actually shrinking. I mean, Germany currently is the only country in the EU with a shrinking economy. And so, so is New Zealand. So um, it sounded all very, very familiar. You're saying this was long before COVID and the war in Ukraine, though? Absolutely. Um, It has been amplified through the war because energy prices are super high in Germany. It's it's the most expensive country for energy at the moment. But um, this has started 15, 16, 20 years ago. There there have been no um, substantial reforms. Productivity in Germany has been declining for the last 15 odd years. And um, when you just now look at the numbers, it's it's surprising. You wouldn't believe it initially that a country like Germany that was known for its efficiency and productivity uh, has fallen out of the top 10 in the EU in terms of capita uh, GDP. Um, It's no longer in the top 20 of competitive countries and has dropped in the ranks of productivity outputs. So uh, that's not something that just happened in the last couple of years. That's something that has been happening in the last sort of 15 years. And hand in hand with no structural reforms, you're also saying political decision making has been reactive. Absolutely. Um, Germany sort of has missed the boat a bit with the whole digitalization process. Um, and that was simply because policies in, in the last decade have been very uh, reactive rather than being at the head of the technology wave, which Germany used to be. Its focus shifted sort of more to social policy and sort of global warming, trying to lead the way there, and other areas have, have suffered from that. And a lot of bureaucracy as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Germany was always known for its bureaucracy, and uh, it's still there, but uh, complaints are that 
Um, we have a bloated governmental system. Um, there's just way too much bureaucracy and it actually stops companies from competing globally because they feel disadvantaged by all these rules and regulations. And again, there are similarities to New Zealand because compliance costs have been increasing in the last years. And we hear many businesses in New Zealand complaining that there's just not enough time to get the job done because there's just so much compliance to, to follow. What does Germany need to do to get out of this funk? Well, I went right back to the philosophical approach that I had taken in my last column as well and actually said, we have seen a shift in, in, in philosophy. Germany used to be a country that um, valued hard work, efficiency and sort of pressure as well with work. But we have now come into an environment where people believe there should be effortless prosperity, where pressure is a bad word, um, competition isn't seen as, as, a, as a good thing um, either. And that seems to filter through all parts of society from school education. Germany has fallen in the ranks, just like New Zealand, and in the PISA rankings, that our school leavers are not as qualified as they used to be. Um, in businesses, we don't see people apply themselves as much, and that filters right through um, the economy as well. So how does Germany become an efficient state? Well, we need to appreciate and recognise and value hard work, excellence, uh, people who apply themselves and go the extra mile, rather than believing that equality is the new way to go. Uh, and if that happens and we start again right from our youngsters and uh, kids right through the different uh, the education system and industries then i think germany will get um, back on track but it all comes with the fundamental idea that we believe in in a free market economy that it's the government's role is to provide an environment where people themselves are responsible for their well-being rather than now where we perceive the government to be a guarantor for our well-being. And that's not the case. So once we actually go back to our ideas of a free market economy, which New Zealand believes in, which Germany believes in, um, I think we will get back on track both in Germany and also in New Zealand. What are the growth outlooks like for Germany right now? Struggling, they're still struggling because of the high um, energy prices. As I said, the economy is slowing and then the outlook is not too positive uh, for that at the moment. So um, the government is under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of turmoil with our big coalition. Um, at, at the moment, it's all over the news um, and we don't have an election this year like in New Zealand, but uh, the following year, and I think that will bring some change as well. Mm. What's the business situation like in Germany right now? Is it a good place to do business? How are businesses faring? Uh, no, it, it's not. Um, we have a double winning here. Um, they, they struggle to find enough staff. Um, there's a shortage of employees here. Uh, businesses are saying they have business but just don't have enough staff. And then when they have staff, um, they have to follow all sorts of, of extra compliances, costs which um, make them uncompetitive. And that's why um, production costs have been increasing. And in a global environment with so much competition going on, um, it's currently not the base, best place to be. And the business outlook and uh, is actually not that positive in New Zealand. Uh, in Germany. Sounds like a good place. To, 
Sounds like a good place to be analysing the economics right now for you. How are you faring over there? Yeah, it, it, it's good. I mean, I, I enjoy my time here as economists. It's exciting when things don't go smoothly, right? It, it's get a bit boring if everything is, is going well. Um, so I'm currently working at a university here and I'm part of advisory groups. So I think a lot of people come together at the moment here and try to change things because um, it's time uh, to do those kind of things. All the best. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. You're most welcome. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Dr. Andrew Kralicek is the founder and chief technology officer of biotech startup Sentian Bio, which has attracted global attention, including from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for its work in combining insect biology and nanotechnology into something truly pioneering. Andrew joins me now to talk about his journey in entrepreneurship so far. Thank you for coming in. No worries. Thank you. <laughs> now tell us, for the you know, keep it simple, um, what the technology involves. So basically what we're doing is we're creating an insect nose on a chip so that we can digitise the sense of smell and taste. And to do that we're taking, well we're making insect olfactory receptors or smell receptors in the lab and then we're coupling them to an electronic chip and then we've got a biosensor platform underneath it which can read the combinatorial output from all those receptors, how each of those different receptors respond and that creates a VOC print kind of like a QR code in a way, which can then be correlated with other VOC prints that are in a library, find a match, um, you can then make a diagnosis, and then you can maybe prescribe a treatment for some kind of a disease or some other kind of application. That's the basis of it. So was there a moment where you went, aha, this could be a great, uh, something that could be much, much bigger with a great impact, or did it come to you over time? Um, I think we all re always realised, um, I mean, I started this work more than 20 years ago mm -hmm. um, in a group at Plant and Food Research. It was Hort Research then. We all always kind of realised there was potential there to, to create something which could um, open a new way of sensing. Uh, and I always think of Star Trek. I used to watch it as a kid and, you know, the Spock's tricorder, this device which could read, um, you know, seemingly read any kind of uh, disease state or whatever they were detecting and this seemed to be the way to do it because we're using something volatile organic chemicals and we know that all living life forms produce these things um, as a part of a uh, natural processes of, of metabolism and that's information about the state of these um, organisms and if you could read what I call this chemical language well then here's a way of getting real-time information about the state of your health or a plant or the environment, what's happening in the environment. So here was an avenue to a powerful new approach, you know, to look at the world um, and change the way that we engage with the world. Um, yeah. You can't have been the only scientist, though, to have thought this this would be great if we could get this, you know, yeah. in, in another form. So what has differentiated you and your journey to making this a reality, a money spinner? You've got backers, you've got investors. Well... I mean, in the past 30 or 40 years, there's been many companies attempting to mimic nature, and that's been to use artificial nanomaterials to try and create artificial smell receptors. And they've had some success, um, but they've never been able to get the precision and accuracy that nature um, can offer, like, you know, training a dog mm. to smell, um, 
a disease on your breath like COVID, well, you can actually train a bee to do that as well. So we know that insects have that power, that power of discrimination. And I think that's probably what's been so exciting and attractive about what, what Sentien is offering here. Is it's a new way to look at the world, but what we're doing is harnessing 400 million years of evolution. We're harnessing what nature's already worked out, and we're putting it on a chip. Um, and that's radical, right? That's a radical way to do things. Um, we haven't, as humanity, hasn't really done that to much, to a great deal, other than using antibodies, for example, and rat tests or pregnancy tests. So this is taking it to the next level. We're mimicking exactly how an animal, an insect, um, smells its world. Mm, it's pretty amazing. Um, so you've gone from being sort of a scientist to being... Yep. And I don't want to say a salesman, but a founder has to be, yeah. to some degree, a salesman of their own idea. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So how would you describe that evolution for yourself? Um, well, I do like talking. <laughs> <laughs> I like talking to people and I like sharing. And that's probably been part of that, having to be able to tap into that ability. Because you really do need to be able to communicate in a, not necessarily a simple way, but in a, in a, to, to sell the idea in a simple concept, right? Yes. Um, and... I'm passionate about what we're doing. I already believe we're going to do this, and that's helped as well, I guess. I think for some scientists it might be challenging to put themselves out there, and, it, and I think you can do it with a lot of training. Mm-hmm. That can be done. Um, but if you don't have the passion, you're never going to be able to sell, and then you're, ne- you're not going to be able to make people believe in what, you, what you're wanting to do here. Um, yeah. So I think that's... An, Personally, that's one of my biggest assets is I'm passionate about this, like like most scientists, and I, can, I think I can communicate it. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned in entrepreneurship over your time? Um, I've learned you've got to roll with the punches. Um, we've had a, a roller coaster ride, and maybe that's what everybody does a startup has. I think um, from talking to others, everybody's got their own unique journey, um, and we've certainly had ours, but it's being able to get back up and get on the horse and keep going and learn from what's happened rather than dwelling on it. That's been the biggest success for me is, or to keep me moving, because, you know, things have happened where we thought, okay, this is over. You know, this this particular platform we're testing or is, isn't going to deliver what we thought it would. Um, and we managed to get through that. We, we got out there and we searched the world for other platforms and we did pilot studies and we found the one which we're currently on now, which I believe is going to deliver what we're we're wanting to create here so it's trusting your gut and staying true to the direction you're going um it can't, it's it's not easy though <laughs> yeah <laughs> and what is the key to to working with money people scientists and money people is it that you have to have money people who are patient investors and understand science or is there some other sort of key to getting on really well i, I think you you need to um you need to be able to communicate to them in simple terms, what you're doing, but you've also got to, got to be able to share the challenge with them because doing science and turning it into a technology is not an easy thing. Um, uh, what we're dealing with is a deep technology here and, and it's data-driven, so we're building the platform now and then we'll be collecting the data on a, grant, on a big scale and that's where the real value is in the data. So you need investors who are prepared to to go on that ride, to go on that journey. We're not a software company. We're a deep tech company. So we need investors who are prepared to, to keep going 
all through those ups and downs and keep holding on to onto the goal there. And we've got those kind of investors, yeah. And Andrew, just finally, the ecosystem for a deep tech company in New Zealand, how would you rate it, the, the support, the help, the whatever is available? Um, I think it's been... Well, I've come into it since 2016. I was fortunate to be the first emerging innovator from KiwiNet, and I think KiwiNet for me was the the catalyst for going on this journey, uh, for taking that choice and and believing that I could go to the dark side, as uh, um, our scientists always seem to say. Um, and that's kind of built a community. Now I can tap into that community. There's other uh, scientists who are doing the emerging innovator program. Um, who I can talk to and I have tapped into in times of, you know, challenging times for their advice. Um, and I've, what else? the other thing I've found is that other people in the community are very open to talking, which I've really appreciated. They'll make time for you to help you, even though, you know, you're basically coming off the street and you may have met them a couple of times. Because I guess as entrepreneurs, we all understand the journey and how hard it can be. And we've all learnt things. We've all made mistakes. And it's always good to help people not make those same mistakes, right? (laughs) Andrew, thank you very much for talking to MBR. Thank you. New Zealand's largest business mission to India returned at the weekend, confident it had opened up significant trade and investment opportunities across a range of sectors. Auckland Business Chamber Chief Executive Simon Bridges was part of the mission, and he joins me now. What... What were the key, I guess, outcomes from that trip last week? I think probably the key outcome is relationships. Um, you know, it's very important in a, in a, a, a huge country like uh, India to establish some key relationships. You can't get everywhere. Um, I mean, it's really 28 nations, one state, Uttar Pradesh, is I think about 265 million people. If it was a country, it'd be the fifth biggest country in the world. So you can't get everywhere. You've got to focus on a few key um, relationships. Um, and, and I think we got a bit of momentum, uh, if I do say so myself, that a new prime minister, uh, whether that's PM Hipkins or a new prime minister and Christopher Luxon, uh, hopefully we'll get up there and we'll keep that ball rolling. Um, we were the biggest trade mission to date, uh, or business mission, I should say. Um, but but I think and I hope that will be quickly broken by one, uh, as I say, not too long after an election, whether the end of this year or the start of next year, um, which will be will be bigger. I think I think more broadly, um, what we saw was a, a very confident India. It's got a lot of growth. Um, it, it's it's been spruced up for the G20, which I think starts about now, um, and uh, you know it was looking good. Um, and there's just a clear sense amongst um, the Indians we were meeting, whether in government or business, that uh, um, it's their time. They've got the biggest population. They're moving this decade from fifth, I think, to third biggest economy. Um, they've got a, a talented young uh, workforce. So yeah. Relationships were established and nothing like being on the ground to get a sense of the the size of the prize and the confidence that's there. So so where are the where are the biggest opportunities for New Zealand businesses? Yeah, I think the truth is, and I'm sorry it's it's so sort of broad. Um I think the truth is there's so much opportunity. Um I, I think uh obviously the opportunities would grow in the near term were we to get one of 
you know, two or three things, a flight, a direct flight, that would make actually an appreciable, tangible difference. Um, you know, there's talk around 2026 of that, um, but you, you just never know, and it's worth it's worth continuing to try and push on that. And obviously, a free trade agreement or even just a trade agreement um, that, that, that that's not exactly entirely free free trade. Um, again, you can do things short of that, but they are that they are that sort of the the, the medium term uh, prizes. And then in terms of sectors, look, um, I'm sorry, but there are so many. Whether it's technology collaboration, whether it's in our traditional strengths around primary uh, produce, whether it's um, whether it's farmer, um, whether it's actually just from a New Zealand perspective, um, getting hold of. Uh, the, the young Indian talented workforce, uh, which we need back in New Zealand. You mean you talked about direct flights and, of course, um, Trade Minister Damien O'Connor was there through that week and had those discussions. Was that a, a help to the business mission to have um, the Trade Minister there at the same time having those government-to-government -government talks? Definitely. I mean, I think it was really good to have Trade Minister Damien O'Connor there. Um, it gave the trip a bit more gravitas. Um, I think the business trip in itself was good and the size of it, um, you know, you know, helped. But having him there definitely makes a difference, opens some doors. Um, and, and I think um, we established good connections in the commercial community, uh, in, in the, the business association world. And, you know, some of those government relationships that he already had, uh, but some of us were able to, um, to deepen a little, I think, as, as well. So in terms of those business relationships and between business associations, what will you do to maintain that connection? I mean, it would be easy just for it to wither away, wouldn't it, if really? you don't? So, I think you raise a very fair point. I mean, the reality is, having been on a mission or three, um, myself, they can be at their sort of, I don't want to say worst, but at their worst, a tendency to go, um, make some good connections, have a good time, get a lot of interest, and then for it to sort of wither on uh, the vine. Um, I come back with a stack of both virtual and real business cards, um, and I know that everyone on the trip would have. Um, we, we need to follow up on those. I think actually the other thing, though, when I talked to you before about relationships, that the next very key kind of um, um, message and, and to do really is to keep on going up. We're the smaller party, you know. We are, we are, we are very little in world terms. India is as as big uh, as it gets, so it's for us to establish um, not only the initial connections but the ongoing relevance, and that's why actually Prime Minister trip uh, next year. Uh, if that's when it is, if it can't be sooner, is is very important. I, I have a view, you know, that I wouldn't shout from the rooftops, but it's a bit like this. We need to be realistic that to get meaningful progress around um, business, trade with India, it is a medium-term project. But uh, I do think just quietly, here's the quiet bit, um, if you keep on going as those relationships deepen, you might just find it doesn't take quite as long as you have to be prepared for it to take. And, and remember, I'm sorry I've already said this, but I, I just get get it in if I if I have one more time. Um, big prize, massive country, 
But trade, two-way trade at the moment is what? It's about a billion dollars. So really very strong. You look at it, the likes of China, where I'm going next week, you know, it's some 40 times that. So there's a lot of room to grow. Uh, the messages, foster the connections and get back up there um, as soon as we can, certainly in the first um, half of next year. So you, you'd hope if uh, the Prime Minister goes next year, whoever that is, that they'd take uh, another business delegation with them? Um, I'd be even strong with that. I, they, they, they have to. And I think that's another important um, point of progress really around this. This wasn't just um, India New Zealand Business Council going. It wasn't just the Chamber of Commerce. It was several organisations, the biggest uh, organ uh, the business associations we have in New Zealand and also the most significant niche ones around uh, India. And we need to keep that going, right? There's 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 no room for kind of um, um, silos, if you like, on that. If we're to make a meaningful impact up there, it requires our ministers and preferably the prime minister. It requires business associations of businesses are going in, in unity with a clear uh, strategy. Simon Bridges, thank you for your time. Thanks, Brent. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. While interest rate cuts next year still look likely, the days of a 0.25% official cash rate are set to become the stuff of folklore, writes Maria Slade in this week's Shoeshine. Well, Maria, you're... Back straight from Sydney after meeting with the folk over at BlackRock where you were treated to their half-year outlook. What did you learn? It's interesting. They haven't included New Zealand journalists on this briefing before. They do it every six months, so the, it's a, it's a well-trodden path for the Australian media. But uh, this time around, they decided to include New Zealand, and it could be possibly because, as we know, they have announced this big $2 billion fund where they are going to invest in conjunction with the government into renewable electricity. So they seem to have a sort of newfound interest in New Zealand. But, of course, they have actually been working over here for quite some time. Two mm. years ago, ASB signed them up as, as a fund manager for all their investment funds. So, that, so they've been around the traps here and, and they do watch the market. But this was really this kind of state of the nation thing. And one of the themes that came out very strongly is interest rates are going to be higher for longer. Mm. We're all kind of hanging out for, you know, the day where the, the RBNZ decides to make its first cut again. Uh, but, you know, BlackRock are actually quite pessimistic on, on when that might be. Mm-hmm. And in terms of some of the commentary around that, what are they saying about sort of economic conditions at the moment and things like that? They're saying that we're in a new environment, that we're experiencing a lot more market volatility than we have in the past. And for, from a fund manager's perspective, that means you've got to be a lot more dynamic. And as I say, they're a bit dark on what the prospects are for interest rates in the next year or two. They're saying that that they haven't got a lot of faith in the central banks, essentially, to, to bring it down fast. And this is for a whole set of reasons. Uh, one, of course, being the um, the transfer to cleaner uh, energy sources. That's going to cost a lot. 
And the other trend that's going on is the move away from globalisation. There's a lot of protectionism going on in terms of the supply mm. chain. And as somebody else pointed out to me today, another big cost uh, sitting on top of countries is climate adaptation. You know, councils are having to spend an awful lot of money upgrading infrastructure and none of that can be offset against insurance or whatever. So this is expensive for ratepayers and it all feeds through to inflation and they feel that some of the central banks around the world haven't got a much of a handle on it. They're a bit dark on their own RBA, actually. Mm. <laughs> what do they have to say specifically about the RBNZ? Because we're often seen as, well, we were the first to start raising interest rates back in 2021. Some thought that we were slightly ahead of the curve. So what's their thinking around what Adrian Orr is up to? They do see us as a bit of a bellwether uh, in comparison to some other banks, um, the RBA in particular. And um, they're just saying that it sort of shows the bank's tolerance for how much inflation they're prepared to put up with. And mm. BlackRock's view is that the Reserve Bank of Australia is prepared to put up with a bit more inflation than New Zealand is. And that even though the latest inflation figures in Australia show that it's coming down slightly, they are still picking that the RBA will hike another 25 basis points by February, which is kind of interesting. Mm. And it's possibly against what some other people are saying. But yeah, they're just saying that inflation Inflation's going to go on for longer. We're going to have to get used to these high interest rates. And it, it's not a case of a new normal. It's kind of going back to the old normal. And the last sort of 15 years or so of incredibly low interest rates were an anomaly. And, uh, you know, the, the likes of perhaps your generation, Nicholas, who've never seen anything else, um, better get used to it. So they're so not going to come down that you're much. You're telling me that when I finally get a mortgage in however many years' time, I won't be paying 2% fixed year rates for a couple of years. <laughs> it's not looking like it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, other commentators that I spoke to said, look, um, that these are the central banks banging the drum and mm. saying, and, and you know, being very tough, talking very tough on this issue because, of course, the sentiment feeds through to the market as well. And that actually, you know, interest rates may have to start coming down a bit faster than even the RBNZ is predicting because just because the, our, our economy anyway is slowing down, you know, all the economic data is piling up. You know, we could be in a third quarter of negative economic growth right now. We don't know, of course, we haven't seen the data. And so, it, it, you know, it could happen. But I think the idea that we were going to go back to, you know, a 0.25% cash rate, it, it's its a bit of a legend now, really. Mm. That was a blip. And um, probably we are going to have to get used to higher interest rates than we have seen in, in recent times. Well, I'll go home and cry and prepare <laughs> myself for that. But thank you for your time. Thank you. Edward Miller is a researcher and policy analyst looking at employment and other issues for First Union. And he joins me today to talk about why 90-day trials have emerged on the general election campaign trail. Edward, thank you for joining us. Um, can you explain to us why this has emerged again and why it's become a, an election issue? I Look, it, it has emerged again. It was sort of in the very last um throws of, of the, the last days of parliament that it, the, the bill got drawn from from the ballot. Uh, I think look, the right-wing parties, particularly ACT and National, are trying to differentiate themselves in some way on labour law. There isn't really strong evidence that this encourages the creation of new jobs, and we can get into that in a, in a little while. Um, it probably does empower or slightly change the balance of uh, um, the power balance in the workplace between employees and employers. 
Um, so that's attractive to active national in general who are trying to appeal to businesses and, and small business owners and, and say things like, you know, you've gone through a really tough time during the last couple of years under a Labour government which is not necessarily true. There's, there's some things that are tough. There's some things that have been very good for businesses. Um, and I think that they're just trying to differentiate themselves in some way. Um, I think it's really interesting to try and think about the the likelihood of this proceeding, because as you know, both ACT and National have very, presumably have very strong support for this. Although if you look at um, a couple of community groups have released um, a survey into various policy, uh, survey from political parties into what positions they take on various policies. One of those in the labor space is 90 day trials and ACT apparently oppose the extension, even though they have this private members bill. Um, so I think that must be a mistake on their part when filling in the survey. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure they'd want to get that all sorted out. Um, but it will be interesting to see what New Zealand First, uh, what role New Zealand First plays if we get to the point where there's a, a you know, a potential National Act government that would rely in some way on New Zealand First. The, the issue of 90-day trial periods or the extension to, to, sorry, rolling them back to just small and medium enterprises was one of the things that Labor did kind of within their first 100 days or proposed to do within their first 100 days. I think it might have taken a little longer to get all the legislation in place. Um, but... New Zealand first uh, made sure that that was the small and medium enterprises still had the option of using 90 day trial periods right. um, rather than getting rid of them altogether. So it will be really interesting if there is a New Zealand first element to this government, whether they would play that same role again, um, constraining them just to, to small and medium enterprises or they would support extending them to the whole workforce. Yes, that would be interesting. I mean, this idea was first brought in under John Key's national government, wasn't it? And what was the rationale at that time? Yeah, the the rationale, it, it was under John Key's government and it was staggered as well. So in 2009, I think it was, there was an amendment to the Employment Relations Act that brought in trial periods for small and medium enterprises. So enterprises that have up to 20 employees. Um, and the idea was that it's supposed to give businesses a bit more confidence about their hiring decisions. So particularly you can understand this for small and medium enterprises. Capital is always very limited. They can't spend a huge amount on their human resources kind of engagement. And it, it, there's always risk involved in, in taking on new employees. Obviously, the other side of that is that there's risk for employees and that risk of not of being able to, you know, getting a new job and then all of a sudden being being terminated without having to provide any cause or anything like that. That means that there's significant uh, employment security implications for employees. After two years, this was extended to the entire workforce. So in April 20, uh, 2011, all firms were able to use um, the 90-day trial pr uh, provisions. And essentially, it means that uh, you could terminate an employee or dismiss an employee without having to go through the personal grievance mechanisms under the legislation. So given that it's been in, it's been out, it's been amended, it's done this and that, what is First Union's stance on 90-day trials now? We'd like to see 90-day trials removed altogether. I mean, we can we can understand the impetus to try and have them in there for small and medium enterprises. But by and large, we think, you know, 
the firm the decisions about hiring should be made on the basis of of strong firm decisions and if, if you can't do that then you need to think of other ways of of um, engaging staff or other ways of trying to lift your productivity without trying to bring in new people get rid of new people bring in new people large firms can do this but by and large the concern that we have about 90-day trial periods is that they end up being um, a mechanism to try and break potential for members to join the union or to form a union uh, we know that it's within the first couple of first couple of months of engagement on a work site that you would be contacted by the union, and we have had many experiences of employees who get work, join the union, all of a sudden they don't have work anymore, and employers don't have to explain anything around that. Do you think, though? I mean, our readers would say there is a lot of time expense um, uh, involved with employing someone and also when it goes wrong it's really costly to go through the courts if they even get a hearing um, you know they they feel like the whole system is tipped against them at the moment what would you say to that I would say that from the outset you need to be really cautious in how you make hiring decisions but there are mechanisms that exist under the law to be able to get rid of problematic employees if they violate the company policies then you can use uh, the existing dismissal mechanisms under the law, personal uh, the yeah the existing dismissal mechanisms. If they're um, not performing properly, then there's performance me management mechanisms. Again, I accept that this is more difficult for small and medium enterprises. For large businesses, I think it's a bit more straightforward because they have existing human resources departments and that kind of a thing. For small and medium enterprises, yes, there's more risk, unfortunately, but you have to go through these processes because em employees, workers have their own set of priorities as well and, and they can't be traded off against the, the firm decisions. Edward, just finally, you know, we are looking at an election in which National Enact seem to have a slightly more than average chance of, of winning this election. How is a union like First Union preparing for, an, for a shift in the employment law landscape, which seems inevitable? I think you're right. We are, at the moment, it looks like we're heading towards this. The poll out in the post this morning seemed pretty um, pretty decisive, but who knows? And it's it's in the last couple of weeks where elections are often won, uh, like in 2017, but there is no kind of clear X factor coming in, so who knows? Um, we are very concerned, and it looks like that if we if we head down, if we end up with an, a national act government, that we, we may possibly have the most right-wing governments in the last 50 years, last half decade. That would be very concerning for our members because there has been significant progress under the last couple of years. Fair pay agreements, significant boosts in the minimum, way, in the minimum wage, uh, significant kind of expansion of, of the ability of the state to respond to crises, which we're expecting to see more and more of and which tend to hit working people first. I mean, we're really concerned about the potential of this, and we think that that it's uh, you know we need to be really active and involved. We're currently having nationwide stop work meetings where we're com communicating these concerns to all our members, and we're hoping that you know the. <laughs> Who knows what we're hoping for? I think you all know what we're hoping for, that we don't end up with a National Act government. But hey, the the interesting thing is that often we find membership recruitment is a lot easier under National Act governments because people have something to be concerned about with, with their own rights and that kind of a thing. They're much more likely, I mean, you you members would have probably seen that under left-wing governments or under centre-left governments, workers are much more reluctant to take strike action, take industri industrial action and take uh, and join unions as well. 
we find that the opposite is true. So, you know, we're prepared for a fight if we need to have one. That's not a problem for us. It's kind of what we do, but we'd rather not. Edward, thank you so much for talking to MBR. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz. 